Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark 8. Our text will start at verse 27, but we'll read uh, Mark 8, the entire chapter, in preparation for the reading of the text and for our message today. That's Mark 8. Mark 8, and we'll begin at verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses... They will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. And so they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about four thousand, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha, and then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets of fragment, full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it you do not understand? Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. 
And then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. And here begins our text. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thus far, our reading. Brothers and sisters, you know, in a lot of ways, Christian life in Canada is pretty good. A Canadian Christian, of all people, is a greatly privileged Christian among Christians. In fact, the Christian church in Canada has a lot of advantages in their day and age. Christians enjoy tax deductions, public holidays, usually legal protection for their religion, except for now. They have good seminaries and they have buildings and schools. Nobody harasses a Christian as he comes to church on Sunday, unless the church is in lockdown. And Canadian Christians are wealthy and successful. They run businesses, charities, even have their own universities. And it seems to me that given the backdrop of wealth and privilege in our church, Jesus' words in this passage are somewhat jarring. Because Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, let me read it from, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I 
I mean, have you really read these words? Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think to the modern Christian, these words are hard to understand. I can tell you personally, these words strike right to the heart for me. They've been ringing through my head ever since I was ordained. What does it mean to take up my cross and follow Jesus? And this is going to be our question for today under this theme. If you would follow your suffering Lord, then you must be ready to deny yourself and pick up your cross. Number one, we'll see a right but inadequate confession. And number two, deny yourself and take up your cross. And so to answer our question, we first need to understand our passage rightly, and then our question will become clearer. And so the first thing we need to say about this passage is that Mark 8, verse 27 through 38, is pivotal and central to the book of Mark. In fact, you could say that this passage is the hinge of the book of Mark. It's actually directly in the center of the book, and the two halves of the book come together in this passage. The first half of the book of Mark is answering the question, who is Jesus? And of course that comes to conclusion in this passage in Mark 8. The second half of the book of Mark is what did Jesus come to do, his mission? And he comes to die on a cross. And in the middle of the book, you have the third theme tied into who is Jesus and what is Jesus coming to do? And the third theme of the book of Mark is discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And this is what Jesus is going to teach on. And the point that I'm making here is that because this passage is so central to the book of Mark, the whole book of Mark has to be interpreted through this passage. So this is fundamental. When you get this passage right, then the rest of the book starts to open. And so let's get this passage right by beginning on verse 27. What's happening in the passage? Jesus has just healed a blind man. He's just fed 5,000 people. And now in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples are walking along a road. They're walking to the town of Caesarea Philippi. By the way, this is as north as Jesus gets. So Jesus is going to the end point as far from Jerusalem as he can. And the rest of the book is going to be him coming back. And so he's walking along the road to Caesarea Philippi. And he asks his disciples, he says, you know, who do men say that I am? Who am I, disciples? Surely you must know. And the disciples answer, well, some people, and they, first they say some people, some people say John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, others one of the prophets. I mean, clearly, Jesus, you are a remarkable person, and everyone around acknowledges that to be the case. But then he says, who do you say that I am? You've followed me around. You've seen what I've done. You've listened to my teaching. And now what's your judgment on this? And Peter answers with this magnificent confession, this climactic moment. He says, you are the Christ. This is the word for king, anointed one. 
You are the king. You are the one whom Israel has been waiting for. And then Jesus says, stay quiet about this for now. He's not ready to announce to everyone that he is the Christ. But then Jesus does something puzzling. And this is the riddle of this passage that takes a long time to unravel. And so Jesus, he has this climactic moment. He's the Christ, he's the king. And then he starts to teach in verse 31. And look what he says. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So here you have the King of Israel, the Christ, the Anointed One. And now he tells his disciples, and remember, his disciples have never heard that Jesus has to die. And, his, and here Jesus is telling them that, yeah, I'm going to have to suffer and die. It's shocking. They thought Jesus was going to come and save Israel and throw off the Romans. And instead Jesus says, no, no, now that you've, now that you've identified me as the king, now it's my time to die. And I'm going to suffer. It's outrageous. And Peter thinks, agrees, he thinks this is ridiculous. How could the king of Israel suffer and that, that doesn't add up. Look what Peter does. They're walking along a road. Peter walks up to Jesus. He pulls Jesus to the side of the road and he says, he rebukes him. He says, no, no, no. You, you, you're not going to suffer and die. That's a, no. You see, to Peter, Jesus is like a soldier who's losing his will to fight. Jesus' job is to fight and to save Israel. And Peter's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, none of this talk of defeat. That's ridiculous. No, 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 no. That's, that's not how things go. And Jesus' response to Peter is then the puzzling part of this passage. Look what Jesus says. He rebukes Peter. He says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. How is it possible, brothers and sisters, that in one minute, Peter can confess the truth about Jesus. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then in the next moment, probably less than a minute later, Jesus then basically accuses Peter of acting like Satan. Does this make any sense? You can imagine how Peter and the disciples may be stunned by this turn of affairs. And see, the thing is, you have to realize, brothers and sisters, and we're getting to the crux of the passage here, you have to understand that Peter does not understand Jesus fully. And how is it that Jesus can call Peter Satan? Well, there's a bit of explaining to do here. You have to understand that God's design is that victory over sin and death comes through Jesus' suffering and dying. Why? Because Jesus has to take on the sin of the world in our place. In order for God to show you compassion, God has to satisfy his own judgment, which cannot be stopped. And man's sin provoked God's judgment and his anger. 
And so Jesus voluntarily, through the will of the Father, decided to take God's judgment in our place. Because Jesus is willing to take the judgment of God and the anger of God on himself for our sake, Jesus then allows us to be reconciled to God. We can now know God because God cannot know a sinner. Unless the sinner is justified and the wrath of his wrath is taken away. And so by suffering and dying in our place, Jesus actually defeats sin and Satan. Because if you and I are sinful, we cannot know God. And if you and I cannot know God, you or I are in a desperate, desperate place. Because if you don't know God, then you are at the mercy of the devil and your own sin. And God will not restrain you from sinning and he will not restrain the devil from attacking and defeating you. But if Jesus died for your sin, if he suffered in your place and took the penalty that your sin deserved, then God can know you and protect you and fill you with the Holy Spirit and push and renovate your heart. That's the gospel. And so Satan, brothers and sisters, Satan knew that if Jesus could be stopped, if Jesus did not suffer and die on the cross, that Satan could win. That he could own humanity and keep humanity to himself. And so in Matthew 4, for example, you have the temptations of Jesus. Where Jesus is tempted three times in the desert. You're familiar with the story. What is the temptation of Jesus? Well, the devil offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, right? If only Jesus would worship him and not the... Or if only if Jesus would worship the devil. You see, in Matthew 4, Satan's true temptation of Jesus is to give Jesus victory without suffering and death. to give Jesus victory without suffering under his father's wrath. And so what is Peter doing then in this passage? Peter is unwittingly offering Jesus the same path as the devil already offered Jesus. Peter wants Jesus to have victory without suffering and death. And so Peter's thinking is the same as the thinking of Satan. And that is why Jesus calls Peter Satan. It's because Peter thinks that Jesus' job is to build the strong nation of Israel. But building up Israel is defeat. What people need is deliverance from sin and Satan, not deliverance from the Romans for the people of of Israel. And so Peter, even though he confesses the truth about Jesus is still thinking like the devil. Because the devil knows that Jesus is is the Christ. But the devil is not prepared to admit that Jesus is going to be a savior of men. And neither is Peter. 
And it's a rather striking fact, brothers and sisters, and I want to bring this to the front. It is possible to believe that Jesus is the Christ and yet still belong and think like the devil. And this is the point that Jesus is going to drive at in our next verses. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. You also have to believe that he died for you. Now let's follow. We'll keep going. This is our second point. Because Jesus is going to use this occasion to to teach something profound. Look what he does. He gathers his his disciples together. He's going to teach now. This is important. He gathers everyone together. He's going to teach. Verse 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hold on a second. So not only does Jesus have to suffer and die for your and my sin. Listen carefully. But... If you would follow Jesus and become one of Jesus' disciples, you are going to have to suffer and potentially die as well. One of the church fathers said it this way. He said, Do not by any means imagine that walking on the road behind Jesus is the true following of Jesus. He says, for you should not expect, Peter, that because you confessed me, son of God, that there is only crowns to expect. Here's this, listen to this one. Not only is it hurtful to you and destructive to hinder me, but it will be impossible for you even to be saved unless you yourself be continually prepared for death. Those who would follow Jesus must be ready to deny self and expect death. We deny ourselves. We abandon our desires to serve self. We abandon our desire for a healthy, wealthy life in this world. We let our dreams for worldly success die. And then we pick up our crosses. What does that mean? Well, who better than Bonhoeffer to teach us about this? The man, theologian, who died in Nazi Germany. He said this. The cross means sharing the suffering of Christ to the last and the fullest. Every Christian has his own cross waiting for him. A cross destined and appointed by God. Each must endure his allotted share of suffering and rejection, but each has a different share. Every Christian has his own cross waiting for him. A cross destined and appointed by God. That is because following Jesus in our world is an unpopular, strange, and offensive way of living. And it's a way that forces us to deny our own sin. It's a hard life. And every single one of us has a cross. The question is whether we pick it up. Now, some of you might be here, you might say, that's a little abstract, I'm not sure what that means. 
It's okay. I have a story for you. It's a story about a man named Preacher Bob, and this story will give shape to what your cross might look like. I'll tell you about Preacher Bob's cross. Listen carefully. This is a story that a friend of mine told. Actually, was a member of parliament. It was a friend of mine who spent many years of his life running a logging company in the coastal mountains of British Columbia. One year, my friend said he hired a man named Bob to work on the logging crew. In the first weeks on the job, it became clear that Bob was not like the other men on the logging crew. Bob didn't join in the crew joking. I mean, logging's a pretty tough world. Bob didn't look at pornography. Bob didn't talk trash about women. Bob didn't join men in the bars on the weekend. Bob didn't do the things that the other loggers did. And so the men on the crew began to call Bob Preacher Bob. And the irony, my friend said, is that Preacher Bob never preached at anyone. Bob simply went about his work and did his share. But my friend said that their reaction to Preacher Bob was visceral. At first, the crew hated him. They questioned his manhood. They pushed him around and did whatever nasty thing they could. But Bob never responded with revenge or anger. Instead, over time, Bob would bring cookies to work. Bob would invite the men over to his house for coffee. Bob treated everyone with kindness and worked hard. But he never compromised his standards. And so Bob's cross, brothers and sisters, in this situation, was the rejection and the mockery of the logging crew for his beliefs and life for Jesus. And it's important to recognize here something important. The cross is suffering for Jesus. It's not suffering in general. Yes, this world is full of suffering. Yes, we have many health problems and such. That's not your cross. The cross is suffering for Jesus, in Jesus, or on behalf of Jesus. That's what Jesus says here. He says, um, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever is willing to lose their life for me and the gospel will save it. There's a little more to the story about Preacher Bob. My friend said this about Bob's impact on the crew, and I quote. He said, the results that summer were remarkable. Guys who had run him down behind his back and often to his face began first to back down and eventually became Bob boosters. Men who had mocked him earlier in the year slowly changed their attitude. And while by summer's end they still called him Preacher Bob from time to time, it was no longer a nasty term. Bob was ready to lose his life for Jesus. He was willing to live an uncomfortable life. And by standing on his convictions and living for Jesus, he gained the true life, the real life, the whole life. The life in which Jesus is proclaimed loudly in the way that he lives. And eventually he won. 
the crew ended up respecting him. That's not going to happen in every situation and in every cross. But Bob could live with, knowing with integrity, living for Jesus, being willing to suffer for Jesus, and instead Jesus rewarded him. In fact, the word for losing your life in this passage, this is the same word for kill or destroy. Whoever is willing to destroy their earthly life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel will save it. And when your life is saved, you will receive life from Jesus in both this life and the next. You don't suffer out of uh, sacrifice so much as you suffer out of the joy of knowing Christ. And so brothers and sisters, look, as a missionary, I can tell you that there's no evangelism technique or class that I can give you that is willing, is a, is a substitute for this teaching. A Christian who is willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of Christ is a radiant Christian full of joy. That Christian will be powerful in evangelism. I think this is often the real reason why we aren't very good at it. It's a really hard truth Brothers and sisters, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. I think this truth is deeply convicting for the North American Christian. Because most of us have a pretty good life. It's not a bad thing in itself. The question is, what has your good life done to your heart? Us wealthy North Americans, we like to spend our whole lives having our feet in both camps. We want the best of this world and the best of heaven. Just like Peter. I'm no different. I love to fill my life with planning my next vacation, my plans to snowboard and ski, next car I'm going to buy or the cottage I'd like to visit. Decorating my house, binging on Netflix. You know, I tend to think, brothers and sisters, this is my own heart. Maybe you're the same, maybe not. I tend to think that suffering and hard things are an interruption of the good life that I deserve. After all, I'm a Canadian. I don't like discomfort. And I don't like suffering. And frankly, I don't think I should ever have to suffer. But Jesus is telling you and I in this passage, brothers and sisters, that the person for whom, the one whose life on this earth is more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and eternal life. To love Jesus and the comfort of this world equally is to deny Christ. The fact is, brothers and sisters, 
is that if your faith has never led to discomfort in your life, something is wrong. Now, of course, we don't seek suffering. We don't look for suffering. We don't look for martyrdom. The early church condemned people who went to seeking martyrdom. That's not the point. The point is that knowing Jesus and truly living for him in a hostile culture it will produce pain. It has to. Our culture hates Jesus and it hates people who live the way Jesus commanded. And knowing Jesus forces us to deny our own self and that is hard and requires suffering. If you've ever been to life renewal, you will know that in order to grow as a Christian, you have to suffer. You have to face your pain and walk through it. If you want to keep your comfort, you'll never grow. And so the question comes down to this. Are you, and I want you to go home with this question. You, are you, nobody else, you, are you willing to accept pain or discomfort for the sake of Jesus? I'm not saying, I'm not asking you whether you are. I'm asking you, are you willing should it happen? Are you willing to accept pain or discomfort for Jesus? And you better, I think you need to reflect on this. Remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter implied that Jesus shouldn't have to suffer. Jesus compares Peter to Satan. So is it fair to say, brothers and sisters, that it's satanic to assume that you can follow Jesus and not suffer? Satan loves the comfortable Christian because Satan knows it's an oxymoron. And yes, this is a hard teaching. Yes. It's a very hard teaching. But it's not designed to be hard, brothers and sisters. This teaching is meant to point you towards the greater joy of knowing Jesus because... Guess what? Knowing Jesus is way better than the comfort of this world. Jesus can heal you. Jesus can change you and transform you. Jesus can give you eternal life. Jesus died for you. The comfort of the world never did and never will. It's a mirage. It will, it will, it will steal your joy. So I want to provide a little more shape to the teaching here. I found an article, it's called Eight Signs Your Christianity is Too Comfortable. I want to help flesh out this teaching. Are we too comfortable as Christians? There's eight things we, need, we can walk through to evaluate ourselves, and I want to do that. <clears throat> Here's number one. Your Christianity is too comfortable if your faith aligns too perfectly with a certain political party. Now, Canada, I think that's aimed at the U.S. situation. But I wonder if this could be altered. 
If your faith aligns too perfectly with a certain political ideology, such as anti-masking. If your faith sounds suspiciously political, perhaps your Christianity is not Christianity, but something else. I couldn't care less if people wear masks or not. I'm just saying, look at yourself. Why do you believe in the political beliefs that you have? Or number two, there are no paradoxes, tensions, or unresolved questions in your life. Your thinking is so neat and tidy because you're never confronted with people that are different than you. You're too comfortable. You have the kind of knowledge that's called Facebook knowledge. It's just an echo chamber where people tell you what you want to hear. You're never engaged with people who think differently than you because you're too comfortable. That's hard. And number three, Christianity is too comfortable if your friends and coworkers are surprised to learn that you're a church-going Christian. You're comfortable. Telling your friends about Jesus is uncomfortable. We'd rather not. We'd rather go to work and swear on the job site and hope that nobody ever finds out that we're a Christian. Or number four. Christianity is too comfortable if you never think about or remember the Sunday sermon on Monday. Because you didn't come to church to listen. You came to church to check off a box and to keep your parents happy. Or number five. Your Christianity is too comfortable if no one at your church ever annoys you. Nobody at church ever annoys you because you haven't put any effort into getting to know the people at church well enough. That's uncomfortable. Knowing other Christians at church is uncomfortable by definition. It's much far easier to live on the margin. And number six, your Christianity is too comfortable if you never feel challenged, you only feel affirmed in your life. If you're a comfortable Christian, you're the type of Christian who never ever looks for your own idols or sin. You, you don't want to talk about your own sin. That sucks. That's ugly. It's uncomfortable. You'd rather live thinking that you're a pretty good person. That's easy. Or number seven, you've never had to have a truth in love conversation with a fellow Christian because you don't care about your fellow brothers and sisters anyway. That's uncomfortable to care about other people. Number eight, no one at church could comment on any area of growth they've seen in you. Growth requires facing pain. And if you're comfortable, you hate facing pain and therefore you never grow. And so I share this with you to try put shape to Jesus' teaching. Not all these things may apply perfectly, that's fine. But they should help you think through your own life. Where are you at? Are you guilty? Is this passage speaking to you? Where's your heart? This list should make the comfortable part of you uncomfortable. 
If some of these things are true for you, then perhaps your cross is lying on the ground. When you think about leaving your cross on the ground, you have to remember that what would have happened if Jesus left his cross on the ground? Then Jesus says something else. He says, look, he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will it profit you to gain everything this world has to offer you and yet lose your soul in your eternal life? What's the point? What could you possibly be doing in your life that's more important than Jesus in eternal life? One author said it this way. He said, the world one can live without. But when one loses one's soul, what can man give in exchange? Or the, here's another one. The true Christian would give everything he could, even the whole world if he had it, for the sake of the gospel. And then Jesus gives his most terrifying argument in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Ouch. Ouch. And this is when we begin to learn that the Canadian Reformed life in North America is a dangerous life. It is very dangerous to live the way you live, brothers and sisters. Because your way of life might steal the very thing that should matter most. We think it's dangerous to live in Pakistan. It's not. It's more dangerous to live in Canada. In Pakistan, you have to suffer for Jesus. Right away, you have to make the, the decision right away to, to be a proper disciple of Jesus. But in Canada, you can live for years in between. Maybe you're a disciple, maybe you're not. But let's finish. I've been talked for too long. The point is, brothers and sisters, that this last verse actually gives us comfort, believe it or not. This hard teaching of this passage is not meant to load guilt on you. Nor is it meant to tell you that you need to work harder or that you need to do more for the church or that you need to come to church more often or read your Bible more. No! This passage is telling you to put your heart in Jesus' hands. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm here. I'm here for you. I want your soul. I am willing to love you and bring you to heaven. But I cannot do that if you would rather have the comfort of this world. Jesus is calling you to faith. He's calling at your heart. He's saying, don't let the siren call of comfort distract you from the goodness of knowing me. Don't respond to this passage by thinking you need to work harder for Jesus. You don't. What you need is to radically alter your life so that it belongs to Jesus and not your own desires and comfort. You need to radically renovate your heart and your mind and your whole life so that Jesus is at the center and not something else. And so Jesus in this passage is doing something gracious. He's warning you from the path of folly. The question is whether you're going to listen to the life of this passage. 
Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And brothers and sisters, you got to go to him. Repent of your idols, even the idols that are so-called good things, and come to Jesus. He will not disappoint you. It will hurt to follow Jesus. Of course it will. But it will be joyful and beautiful and whole. So step out, brothers and sisters, and be willing to take pain for your Savior. He will never, ever let you down. He's Lord, and he has an eternity to share with you. Amen. Let us sing in response to him. 35, all stanzas.